0: This is the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast. In this episode, I talked to Gary Hawke, who's based in London. And we talked about bodybuilding, yoga, running, long distance running, that is, um, love as the essence of spirituality, integral theory, the good things about integral theory, and some of the limitations. Uh, critical realism and the work of Roy Bascar, drama therapy as a means of um, shadow work and working with our emotions, and uh, Gary's own journey with psychotherapy and then his transition into being a psychotherapist and working with clients and uh, what that journey was like. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Gary Hawke. very nice to see you, and uh, very generous of you to come and share your personal story with us about okay. your your life of practice. And um, you are um, the. So I've been working with you as your client, uh, psychotherapy client, for um, a long time. Um, probably two thousand and eight. We started. Mm-hmm.
1: It's quite a long while
0: yeah, um, and uh, we do well ma- mainly we've been working um, via Skype once a month, but we've also done some workshops together where you've come down and facilitated workshops uh, for you know weekend or something, and we've got lots of people in to do that, which have been really deep, uh, so you know we've got a relationship that goes back quite a long way. But what's, would be, what's going to be nice for me today is to learn more about your story of practice because normally, uh, as one would expect when we're doing a ther- psychotherapy session, it's uh, all about me. <laughs> so <clears throat> um, so I was thinking maybe with the difference to some of the other calls I've done uh, that have been kind of an organic narrative and all of this stuff's been woven into it. We might try starting with the individual of these four fundamental domains of body heart mind and spirit and maybe just doing them one at a time and we'll see how that unfolds okay okay so if we start with um body practices and i know this is very uh, a very large part of your practice at the moment um body related practices and I'd, I'd love to to hear your kind of history with body-based practices how they started and how
1: this evolved over time so i can go right back to being about 18 19 really and i was always quite skinny and i could never really put weight on and i started it must be about 20 i started bodybuilding and i really noticed how through bodybuilding, I began to expand myself. I began basically began to put weight on. But there was also something about feeling much more at ease with myself. Um, and then I think, and I, I did, I got very much involved in bodybuilding for about five or six years. So mostly through my early twenties, up to being about 26 or 27. And then I had quite a bad injury. I um I tore I tore the buttock off my hip, doing squat. I got into this mad idea of seeing if I could squat four hundred pound, and I'd really and, and for the, for then for a long while. I think I kind of rejected my body. In the it suddenly struck me that I had this thing that I could really work with. That, I, that was really giving me sort of a sense of expansion of myself. I had these exercises, the, the dedicated practice to doing those, the, the the health and nutrition around all of that, and it really became something very important to me. Then all of a sudden it went, and I just couldn't, I for a long while I couldn't walk, couldn't move. And I think I just sort of went, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. So it was a complete rejection of the body. Um, and it wasn't really until I started training as an actor, that I began to see the body as a vehicle of intentionality. Mm. Um, and I think primarily because there's a thing, that Peter Brook in poor theater talks about the idea of making the invisible visible. And I became I- incredibly interested in sort of uh, people like Grotowski. Grotowski has this idea called the the plastiques. Grotowski was a Polish theater director and he was really interested in, how the actor use as their body to communicate. So my body went from being something that was sort of um, muscle bound and quite fixed and, and quite egoic and pushing to a thing that I could use to communicate my inner sense. And I became fascinated by Grotowski and his ideas of movement. Um, the, the idea that you could work with the body and the emotions to create a communicative sense of who you were. And from that I, I sort of started I I started seeing myself as a physical theatre actor. So just before we, we, we develop that line of narrative
0: uh further, the I just want to pick up on one point. Uh an an injury is quite a rite of passage for somebody doing work with their body, particularly if it's a kind of athletic pursuit like bodybuilding. Mm. Mm. Um what, it it's 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 a very difficult thing for, to happen to somebody who loves working with their body and they're very fit and they're, they're used to doing a lot of that, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis. What, you know, could you speak a bit about what that, how that injury changed the way, well, I mean, what, you know, what kind of impact did that have on you? And did you, did you learn some lessons from it and
1: well. It's interesting because when you were speaking there, it suddenly struck me that at that younger age, it wasn't really the body that was the issue. It was actually my ego being encapsulated in the body. So it was more about what I could do with the body from an egoic perspective. So the idea of, you know, treading the fat and having the muscles, it was very much about showing the body off. So when I had the accident, what I realize now is that I didn't have a relationship to the body. I just ignored the body. It just went out of the window. So I think there's something about holding the body as an aspect of yourself that's, in a sense, not part of the ego. So I, the reason I'm suggesting that is because I've had many injuries. In, in, in drama school, I slipped a disc. I didn't stop. At that point, slipping a disc was just, well, that's what happens when you're working with the body. Because it, because I'd begun to see the body as something that was primarily important to be with. Originally, the first injury, it was very much about well, "you let me down, body. It's your fault. This," and a lot of that, you know, the, the health things went, the nutritional things, it all got rejected. It's like the body got just rejected because I'm injured. Well, you it's your fault, body, that you did that to me. Whereas, when I've had injuries now, it's been a process of being with the body and healing the body because being with the body becomes very important to me now. If I don't, if I don't have a fit body, if I don't have a body that I can commune with, then I can't commune with anybody else. When I were 18, I didn't see that. Now I see it as a really important thing. And I think that's the important thing, is that an injury is something that may, means you can sort of take a step back and reassess what you're doing, but it's, the, it's in the process. And it doesn't, if one doesn't get egoically connected to the body in that respect, it's just part of the process.
0: Uh, I think you've highlighted a really good transition um, in, in the in a practice, a body-based practice, where you, people, it's quite common for people to go from, their body is, 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 is kind of like a, almost like a, uh, some kind of pack animal. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, it makes me think of these sort of donkeys that you see in Greece taking fat tourists up the these, you know, mountain paths and stuff. And it, they look so emaciated and and uh, physically um, just beaten in. And mm. <clears throat> and you're not in a relationship with your body, a loving relationship. It's like if you were, if you could flip the tables. And it was like you're in a relationship with somebody that treated the way you treat your body in this cir- in this scenario, you'd be so unhappy. You know, it's, uh, I think there comes a point where you kind of fall in love with your body. Um, was I breaking up a bit there?
1: No, no, you're fine. Oh, no, okay. You're absolutely right. And I think, th- I think that's the thing. I think when, when I started seeing the body as a vehicle of communication, Then it became something, an issue that was important to me. So therefore let's make sure that I have the the communicative abilities in the body. So the dancing is a good thing or uh, some of the other work that I've done investigating drama, all those activities were all about letting the body speak from itself. So therefore now I have to think about what do I need to do with my body to ensure that it's in its optimum condition. Yet at the same time recognise that as I'm getting older, I'm more susceptible to injury. But it's just part of being in a relationship. And sometimes you sometimes relationships are not good. Sometimes they are good. But it's still the relationship there was prior to that. There was no relationship. Yeah. So that when I hurt myself, I, went, I remember recall going back to the gym and wandering around and went to pick a weight up and realised that I couldn't pick the weight up of the weight that i picked up before the injury and i kind of know i don't want to do it anymore and that's the egoic thing yeah so when
0: we're now you're you're doing you're at drama
1: school uh drama school uh, And um a a drama school because it's drama school so you're doing lots of different activities um and from a physical perspective it's dance so i did all the jazz dance and contemporary dance and, and I'm building up this notion of what it means to be an actor that's physical so I'm becoming really interested in things like Gritoski's work and I'm becoming interested in Peter Brook's work and I'm becoming interested in Stephen Berkoff's work which are all the sort of theatre producers who are thinking about the body as a communicative thing I start becoming really interested in yoga and I think I practiced yoga, I, I, I sort of practiced hatha yoga and primarily with sun salutations with extensions. And I did that for, dear me, I, I did that for about 10 years and because I'm, I have a bit of an addictive nature so I did that almost every day for 10 years. Um, and I think at that point, what I gained from yoga, so this is probably right through the 90s really. I think when I sort of started becoming interested in yoga, it became uh, being with the body in a subtle way. Yeah. Whereas prior to that, everything had been quite, um, it had been heavy work. The dancing was heavy work. Everything was sweaty. Everything was about pushing the body and and really placing a lot of pressure and stress on the body. Whereas yoga suddenly became this thing where the body was this kind of subtle thing. And that really gave me a, a, a much more, Grounded sense in my relationship to my body is something that could be tender. I was prior to that, it'd been very aggressive. Um, and then, I, of course, then integral theory starts to emerge for me. And at that point, the body starts to become slightly different in a way, it's not just a physical thing, but it's kind of a thought-based thing as well. So there's a sort of, I've become much more interested in diet. So it's not just exercise now, it's things like keeping the physical body healthy. Whereas bodybuilding is very much about, it's all about getting the proteins in. Whereas there was a shift in a sense to um, thinking about diet in a way that would able to maintain that subtle relaxation that yoga gave. And then integral theory of course starts to ask you to think about the body in slightly different ways. So the idea of subtle bodies and causal bodies and all that kind of spiritual dimension. But prior to that, it had not really been there. It's not fair to say that. I, I come from a family that was very religious. So the notion of spirituality runs through all that. But to think about the body as a spiritual vehicle really starts to emerge when I start into the early two thousands. Really,
0: it's definitely not part of the um, the t- treating the body as sacred uh, is definitely not part of the Christian mainstream tradition, uh, as far as no, I've, as true. far as I've encountered it. you uh, saying about you know you well, were coming you were coming from this uh, religious background
1: you know, mm, 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 mm. I, I think from the the Christian tradition, really, the body's very much been something that you eat. You no, know, they the, they talk it's, it's the body of Christ. What there isn't in, or, or my experience of the Christian tradition, is that the body was something that you had to get away from. You to, to get to heaven, you had to leave the body in a sense, really. So there isn't very much. I mean, the, throughout my childhood, there wasn't very very much about being in the body apart from the fact that my father was very much into when he was younger he was also into bodybuilding so there was a kind of parental connection there but other than that there wasn't really in that in that sort of Christian tradition that my parents are following it was more about ecstatic body I remember going to a, a Pentecostal church meeting where people were sort of having it appeared to me as a a child that they were having fits so there's was was an ecstatic movement but it was very much about getting out of the body it wasn't about being in the body and i think it took me quite a while to get that sense of what the body is and how one is in the body and then i I have an issue and my issue is when we're with the body what are we practicing and i've always had that Sort of, I was an issue around the notion of practice. But for me, what I began to do is think about building a more deeper, long term relationship with my body. So, as opposed to getting out of my body, what I want to do is get into my body. And I really wanted to see what my body could do. Yeah. And that's, and so what Integral Theory brought forward, and, and also um, the George Leonard uh integral transformative practice did is it began to talk about different ways so that the, different ways in which you could work with the boy so the kata that the integral life practice has a kata uh, integral transformative practice has a kata and it's just a series of movements so i think i think kata means dance doesn't it or flow so the idea there's a series of movements that you can practice and you can bring multiple things into them so i did that again i walked at the kata and did a lot did the kata for many many years and also, running integral life practice groups meant that we were doing the cat and I was training people in doing the cat, and I really learned the cat and became very efficient in doing the cat. M- m- the muscle memory was so good that I could just do it anywhere. Yeah. Um, and I think, but then I started, I have the, the, the issue of starting to become slightly disillusioned with integral theory. But then I. The next thing that happened to me is that I suddenly realised that we're going to be 50. And what does that mean for somebody who's 50 and their body? And how does the relationship to the body change as we become older? But not just how does the relationship to the body change become older, but what's the mental space that we have about the body and what's the social message we get about the body when we get to 50? and I in myself decided I wanted to challenge that and so I did something I've never really done before which is I started running and I ran and I mean I've, I've run the marathons I've run ultra marathons what I wanted is I wanted to really see what would happen to my body if I ran but I took all the other things I'd done the subtleness the use of the weights the use of the yoga if I if I thought about bringing in all those things to the running, could I sustain running when it will become much more challenging to avoid injury? Mm. Uh, And that's, and really, I mean, we're we're seven years in now and running has been my main physical practice. I, I went back to using weights because I wanted to sort of structure my muscles more. But what I found about running is that you could lock in the other practices, the other dimensions of an integral life practice. That you could create an integral life practice that was predominantly structured around running. So for I, me, I remember is, you,
0: you, you um, were telling me about Zen running.
1: Yeah, well, there's also there's the, the whole the whole notion. I mean, this Zen running, this Chi running, the, the whole notion of mindfulness running. That again. I think I think it goes back to the notion of distancing ourselves from our egoic construct of who we are and not seeing the body as something that we can do to show the world who we are that that sort of look at my muscles okay fast I can run look at my personal best this sort of valuing the body as as a something that i can hold up and say aren't i a good person or don't aren't I to do well for me was suddenly saying actually running is a very deeply spiritual practice of being at one with oneself being completely in tune with the movement of oneself being completely open to the environment i run in london so it's one has to con- constantly be surveying where we are you know the, the, the roads the, the sort of risk assessment of running in london is, is something that's to be thought about but it's a pure practice of being in nature with oneself and it's a the the idea of the forward momentum of just noticing that when you drop into that space in yourself and you are completely calm and relaxed and your body's in motion For me, it makes me feel alive
0: Mm.
1: and and really running has become, I would have to say in in some respects, running has become the only thing from a practice perspective, it's the only thing I do. And that's primarily because I have a a, a contract, a a contraction. I have a contraction against the notion of practice. I I, I think it's, I, I struggle with the term. So for me, I'm not practicing anything i'm just being
0: yeah one of the one of the things that i've talked with uh, with other people is how as this kind of practice lifestyle matures over time that uh, to, to to begin with it does feel very much like you're doing practices um and it's a little bit like when you learn to drive a car you get in And there seems to be so many things you're having to take into account all the time with gear changing, checking the mirrors and the clutch and all that. And everything seems sort of separate. But, you know, as over time, you just get in your car and you just drive and it's just an extension of who you are. And, uh, you know, when one's been doing certain practices for many years, uh, it just becomes baked into your way of being it's your lifestyle now and it's not you, you don't you wouldn't necessarily talk about it in terms of oh i have this practice and that practice yeah, does that make make
1: sense it, it does the, the, the difficulty i have i mean i completely agree with what you're saying but the difficulty i have is for me practice is getting better at something yeah and i and and this is this was my sort of one of the reasons why I sort of started to move away from integral life practice. I don't know what I'm practicing. I'm not practicing to play tennis. I'm not practicing for running a marathon. I'm just being, and I, and I feel that there's a notion in the community that we are practicing. We're not practicing because you would have to say, well, what are you practicing for? What are you trying to get better at? And I think, for me it's it's not about practicing to get better at something it's actually practicing if practice is a practice it's about liberating myself from things that are holding me back mm. but i'm not practicing that that's
0: i uh i i tend, so i people sometimes have in like an intrinsic motivation and some people have an extrinsic motivation um people tend to fall into one of the two camps and uh, some people like to set themselves specific tasks and goals and um and that's the more extrinsic thing and the intrinsic motivation is is more you just you do it for the love of of the act itself and um i feel like uh the the sort of practices that i do i do them to uh with this unending expansion uh is is the is the kind of the driving force of my practice and I don't necessarily have a goal I'm working towards it's just I uh, I do it whereas more early on for me it was I I would sort of set up these goals but I realized I was someone that that preferred the intrinsic motivation approach
1: rather than the extrinsic um yeah I I think particularly with the body and I and I thought long about this. And I, I'm i not sure if I am motivated anymore. I think I just do it. I think, I think I, it, it liberated me so much that just that sort of notion of i can the I can do, I can do the, the shadow stuff in the running, I can do the spiritual dimensions in the running. I can work through my relationships, I can think and process information, I can think about things or I can unthink about things. the running just became what I do, and i and what I've noticed recently over the past year or so is that it's no longer intrinsic or extrinsic; it's just breathing for me. I just do it mm. and so you know i i mean i've i've said so i'm i'm i've got the i, I started doing cold showers a, a year ago and i decided to do a cold shower every day for 5 minutes and i thought so i don't know i'm, I'm some I, I think i've done about almost 300 cold showers but one of the things i noticed with the cold showering is that i just do it i don't do it there's no intrinsic motivation. There's no intrinsic motivation. It's just it's what I do, and I think that's what's been really beautiful for me is that it's liberated me from the constraints of practice. I don't practice. I just do them. Yeah. With that, I'm just
0: thinking of somebody just starting out on some kind of practice journey, hearing you say this, and and they might be saying they might feel. Oh, it's easy for Gary to say this because he's been, you know, doing this practice for, um, uh, you know, thirty years or whatever, and uh, he's got to the place where it doesn't feel like a practice anymore. You know, do you feel people can start from that place, or is it is it a place that one gets to?
1: Well, it, 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 I'm not sure. Because, well, let me think through that. I trained as a British athletics running coach when I started running because I wanted to understand the mechanics of running. And when I and I did work with people to sort of help them start running. And one of the things that I used to say at the beginning is, "What we're going to do is just run and see what happens." The what the, the important thing I think in practicing is to start with the feel of it, what does it feel like? Where, where does it land for you mentally? Where does it land in your body? When when you, after the event and after the exercise or the practice, what are you left with? Really get a sense of how does this feel in, in me? How does this sit in me? And in doing that, is it something that I want to pursue? Do I want to begin to dedicate myself to that and that might be the intrinsic motivation i i think
0: uh it's it's when you love something it you have this natural affinity for it and you you just want to do it because you love it and um that's quite what you're saying is making me think about that that you can kind of you can try out different practices to begin with but it, and, and actually just feel like what does it feel like to do it and is there the possibility of falling in love with that particular uh thing you know
1: over in long term yeah but but i think it's a bit like building a relationship The what what i th- where i think i went wrong is that I didn't build a lasting relationship with something. I went out there and said, I want that as quickly as possible. So when I took up bodybuilding, it was very much about, I wanted to be four or eight stone. I want to be 14 stone. So I worked really hard to get to being 14 stone. And of course, I stupidly hurt myself in a sense. But I think what was happening is just that there was no time for relationship. I didn't think about the thing I wanted was doing i just thought about the techniques and I, I think in a way as i begin to think about this more i think that's where i began to see my my understanding of practice slightly differently is that in the practice of bodybuilding i lost myself there was no relationship i didn't build a long-term relationship i didn't think about what this was like when we was 17. I just did it because I wanted to do it and now I found something that might have come from the fact that it's built on or it's underlaid by all the other things I've done but I want to do it for as long as I can do it physically do it so now it's a relationship so it's not just a relationship with the activity it's a relationship with my body and I'm starting to think about well how do I don't want to cultivate that relationship hmm.
0: it's uh, lots of people refer to whatever practices, as as like a, a marriage you know a, it's entering into a marriage uh, rather than the sort of uh, you know one night stand type type thing
1: yeah I, I, I do, it's just when we said that because I, I, I agree with you but actually i i do like to play around
0: <laughs> oh yeah yeah. Sure. No,
1: <laughs> yeah i mean but <laughs> yeah
0: there's a there's a there's a balance there, isn't there? So yeah. well, I
1: know I, I thought, yeah I, I get what you mean though. But but you know it, what, Yeah, yeah. Totally, I mean yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It yeah.
0: does. It, it, that could sound really traditional and uh, overly conservative, <laughs> yeah. but um, I think if you really want to get somewhere with your, I mean, this is say your body for the rest of your life. You're in a relationship with your body for the rest of your life, whether you like it or not. Um, and uh, you know you can you can you can approach that as if you were married to your body for for a long time you know and and how would you work in in that kind of relationship container
1: maybe you you, as you were saying there it, it, it sort of i noticed that maybe what we have to do when we start initially wanting to practice with the body is that we have to wake up to that relationship and in any relationship, we have to think about what our responsibilities are. So we could talk about myself, my body and the relational space that exists between and and in that relational space, I put in my practice. So I might put in my weights or I might put in my weight, so my key, or I might put in my running in the relational space that becomes the object in which I can deepen my relationship to my body, but I have to awaken to that. And I think in the early stages of me working with the body, I wasn't awake to that relationship. Mm-hmm. And so that's, so for me, I think that's becomes really important. That's the, if I would suggest to anybody starting off is waking up to the relationship of your body. And then start to, in some way, you know, it's it's, all, it's almost like tantric, really. It's about worshipping the body and by asking the body what it needs and what it wants. And also to think about the fact that it's not just the exercise. Uh, we haven't really spoken about it, but I did a lot of breathing. I've done all sorts of different sorts of breathing practices to get the breath into the body. It's not just about physically pushing oneself. It's about getting the breath into the body. It's about slowing the heart rate. Yeah. Well, a, a, a anyone
0: that does any type of physical uh, work who is experienced um, and they've done it for a long time, they do tend to start talking about the breath a lot more, um, whether it's uh, you know strength training or... Mm, uh, mm. Mm. running um Mm. yoga it's Mm. in a way it's almost like focusing on your in the early stages you're learning the actual form of the activity is taking up so much mental uh processing power you can't you can't focus on your breathing at the same time because it's all it's just too much you know but once the the other stuff becomes automated a bit you you can then sort of bring your attention
1: to the more subtle things like breathing but you, you one might reverse that side because in running r- running i i think running has to start with the breathing i i think the, particularly the, the, that particularly that that the way in which i do it it, it has to um, Okay, it's interesting i just noticed i've said something different to what i was thinking in my head but i I think when i did the running coaching the important thing was to ensure that people were breathing properly yeah because there is a if we get caught up in the do it just doing the technique we forget that breathing is part of the technique and the I once—I story the point. I once remember, remember train. I was training to go into a competition in in, in the eighties, a bodybuilding competition, and I was training with a guy who, when he breathed, when he did his weights, he had this incredibly beautiful way of breathing, but he never made a an noise. And I I went, I used to go to a gym that was it was a proper bodybuilding gym. So he'd be grunting and groaning and screaming and shouting. He never made a noise. He was just really quiet. And but he was shifting a lot of every weight, and i said to him why 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 do you not grunt you don't grunt like everybody else and he said i don't grunt because i'm saving my breath <laughs> yeah yeah that's interesting you know? yeah that's, that's... And, and and he wasn't a spiritual block he just knew instinctively that if he wanted to move a weight he needed to get the air into his body he needed to get power into his body to push and grunting and groaning lost him that energy leaked out of him and i think that from from a perspective of working with the body i think one starts with the breathing so that the technique then can be built on the underlaboring of good breathing yeah that's that's good advice so
0: shifting our attention now to um, some uh, heart practices, um, you know, by by heart. I'm sort of talking about psychotherapy, um, relationship work, those kind of things. Oh heavens! Yeah, we're I'm here. We're uh, we're, we're, in,
1: we're in the jungle now. <laughs> yeah. <But laughs> if we really can sort are. of
0: rewind the tape back again, um oh, you, you know, when did that that
1: kind of awakening thing happen for you? <laughs> but it's funny I, I I've been thinking about this and i said I, I wanted to go back as far as I could when I was a child, we had a next door neighbor who one afternoon he was sitting on the, the garden wall and he was reading a book and I went and he was a good neighbor and we, he was well known by everybody around and things and I went to ask him what book he was reading and he's reading a book about out-of body experiences and i Wrote to this book and I became fascinated by the notion of being out of the body. It was really early childhood. And my parents had become, as it became more and more religious, my father was very good about allowing us to read things that were anti-Christian. He always believed, he used to say that you should know your enemy. And I I read a lot of witchcraft books. I also read a lot of Taoist books. And I really began it's very early on to really get this sense of an inner landscape that in some way was creating a sense of me and it's always been there and i've been fascinated by the idea of the inner landscape that that represents me um and when i started training as an actor I really struggled a lot trying to break free of that northern working class structure in, in a cosmopolitan place. And I started doing some therapeutic work there about just developing the notion of what it means to be confident. And then I, I noticed that an actor becomes somebody else. And that there's something in the notion of an act becoming somebody else that must mean that there's some techniques that one can use, therapeutically speaking, to get to know yourself better. And it's what stopped me acting that I began to become really interested. Initially, I, I was fascinated by cognitive behavior therapy and the notion of repositioning thoughts to see the world differently. And I did a lot of training in cognitive behavior therapy. I, I went to university and did some treats training it. I worked for about 10 years working with people who were it the term was this come third sector or disadvantaged people. it's was the normal term. But it was trying to help people gain more traction on their personal value. And I think I just became fascinated by what my personal value was and my depth into my personal value. Um, and then I, I then got the opportunity to train as a drama therapist and that's where I, I get into the real deep heart of my own particular journey that, yeah, it wasn't pleasant. I spent three years crying. Um, my, my, my drama therapy training was predominantly in ritualistic theatre, which took back, which came from but the, the, we go back to things like Grotowski and Peter Brook there. And it was very much embodied work. So there was a lot of physical work and there was a lot of, um, it's quite young in, in nature. So we did a lot of things like Paul Rebel's Hero's Journey, we did a lot of, um, Gabrielle Roth's Five Rhythms Dancing, um, we did a lot of shadow work. We did a lot of personal drama based on our shadow work, and I basically spent three years wandering around my shadow. Yeah, um, really getting to know the darker side of myself. I, you know, and also, of course, in getting to know the darker side of yourself, there's the lighter side of yourself as well. All those things that are repressed about myself, and it wasn't pleasant. I, I. I can't for a minute suggest any shadow work is ever pleasant
0: well how how, i just wanted to ask how did how were you brought into contact with those shadow elements because quite often the shadow is an unconscious part of ourselves and we can't necessarily access that through our own effort and we need um well that's why i've been working you've been a a psychotherapist helping me access my own shadow in a way that I can't do it myself um you know what what how did that happen for you um
1: so the, the the starting point it is to find a practice that removes barrier and um in my training so Grotowski, the Polish Theatre out Grotowski, had these set of exercises called the Exercises Plastise. Plastis, yeah. There's another one as well, but I can't quite remember what that one is. But basically, he wanted to train his actors to remove their ego, and the exercises are done very intensely over a long period of time to the point at which you exhaust yourself. And I... As part of the training, we did um, a weekend of the exercises and we basically just exercised for 48 hours, which, which, which is what Gritoski did. And I broke down, literally. I ended up on the floor in absolute tears because I couldn't do any more. At that point, Gritoski's notion, the ego just disappears. And what what you're left with is you no longer have any resilience to tolerate repression, and it all comes flooding through.
0: Mm. I've noticed where when I'm feeling tired, um, all the things that I normally push away, the nastier sides of my personality start to come forwards. Um, and mm. uh, So I, I know exactly what you're what you're saying, and that's that's just normal tiredness. That's not after forty eight hours no, it's just, <laughs> dancing around.
1: But it's 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 the same thing that you know that. If if Wilbur talks about the idea that as you're you're climbing up the ladder in a way and and some of that energy is always pushed, you're using some energy to constantly keep that repression lid on yourself that we don't necessarily have all that energy to do something because if we always have to have a bit of energy left to keep that repression barrier down, if we become tired, that repression barrier can lift so we can become very angry if we don't deal with our anger. We can be very depressed if we don't deal with the sense of depression. It's what's really important for me is to spend that time in that space. And I know I use the word shadow, but it it's a difficult thing because I don't really think it's a shadow as such. It's just there are things that are part of me that I may have stopped looking at and I can only see them from their shadow and I want to look at them and therefore I have to turn around and I have to meet them. And Rebello, Paul Rebel has some religious things so uh, active imagination is a particularly good way you can, oh, there's a technique where you, you can through an active imagination you can walk into your shadow and meet your shadow content the guest talks you know the 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 um the empty chair for example is a a useful shadow tool because you can put aspects of your shadow on the chair and you can talk to them and you can have dialogues with them mask work is a brilliant shadow exercise i remember doing some incredible powerful mask work where we went through a process of going into the shadow seeing aspects of our shadow and then coming out and making masks of them and wearing them, and I recall one event where we had a we had a demon dance where we all put our shadow masks on and we allowed our shadow out. So it's a it's a frightening thing. That
0: that's, that's so it reminds me of sort of modern version of a lot of uh, tribal rituals involving masks of, of different taboo characters maybe that you know only come out at certain times
1: well i i but again i I think that's primarily because i trained in ritualistic drama therapy oh
0: yeah so
1: what happens is is that it, it was it was incredibly ritualistic so the whole thing was a very ritualistic thing what it what it did for me is it made me notice when I am um, when when I may be experiencing a shadow moment and it also gives gave me techniques to be able to speak to shadow moments so sometimes um, it's interesting I used to find that what I could do is go on the treadmill and let my because the treadmill is a safe place and I didn't have to think about where I were running I could get on the treadmill and I could shadow run on the treadmill which is that I would allow a shadow aspect of myself to inhabit my body and take over the running. Wow. Um, so I, I could do things like um, resentment. It's I very good. I quite, <laughs> quite running, running with it. So just allow resentment to be, let resentment run. Or let anger run. Um, uh, let fear run let the murderer run. It's really, it's quite good because the, tread, because the treadmill's safe really. Yeah. But, you, but because I had that sort of, I have that drama background so I, I have the acting thing and then the therapy thing on top of that means that I could allow these things to be embodied. Hmm. And that, that, that's quite funny. I don't know what it looks like in a gym when i <laughs> Yeah. So I'm, and, and because my work primarily is in supporting other people exploring that you know the the regions of themselves that are there but they don't you know it's like the road less traveled if you will that i'm not they're not traveling them i i spend a lot of time thinking about it i spend a lot of time reading about it i spend a lot of time noticing it so it's big it becomes quite a powerful aspect of my life now
0: and you so you you started working with with clients online uh in about 2008 what, what how did that compare to what you'd done before uh in terms of working with people you know you were working in, with people in person a lot and then you kind of transition to uh, doing a lot of online work. What is there anything of note to, to, to mention about that? Um,
1: I, I I think that what the, the transi- I the transition. I mean, it's interesting. I think in a way, I didn't see a transition because when I'm it, the thing that's missing. And I think maybe one of the reasons why I, I took up the, the running coaching is that I, I don't that I'm. It's not often that I work directly embodied with people, and I really enjoy doing that. I enjoyed the sort of body work. I I, I, I I did a lot of reading and training in Reiki and muscle arm and things and, bio, and uh, biodynamics work. So that's and, and doing sort of breathing work. So that I miss doing that because I, I really enjoy doing that. But I think somebody once asked me the same thing. And I said, well, we are, when we listen to a radio play, the drama takes place in our heads. The acting, we just hear voices, we create the landscape. And doing, going online was just about going into the inner landscape and not being able to build the sets or think about how the body works. It was much more about really focusing on the inner landscape and asking questions about what was going on in the inner landscape. So it became much more, from instead of being directly engaging with the actor and training the actor, what I began to do is become the director, supporting the actor in the performance. And it's also fair to say that I trained to be an actor because I wanted to be a director. Right. So it's very much about asking he's investigating what what might be stopping somebody acting in this way what might somebody be stopping being this way so it's still in some way taking that technique of acting but shifting it into rather than the external on stage aspect it's more about the internal landscape of the individual in their own drama, yeah, so I didn't really see much of a shift i <clears throat> um
0: You know, around 2007, around that time for me, I realised I I wanted to uh, enter into a psychotherapeutic relationship um, because psychotherapy had not... It's been something I've been fascinated with for a long time. I even did a psychology degree for a while, uh, uh, but I I didn't actually enjoy it and stopped halfway through. But um, it's always something I've been interested in, uh, but I'd never actually done psychotherapy uh, on a long-term basis because uh one of the well i live in in quite a remote area and mm. i kind of felt like the pool of uh psychotherapists in my area uh, was was a bit small probably for the more niche types of stuff i wanted to work with um uh, i was probably you know probably unnecessarily narrow-minded there but uh, it was kind of easier for me to get online and find exactly the person I wanted to work with, which was you. Um, but we live, uh, I mean, it's like a, it'd be a four hour drive from my house to yours. Um, mm-hmm. so you know, that, that makes it very difficult. Whereas to do it via the internet, uh means you know it's very easy to make that happen and it takes quite a lot of the cost down because you know not having to rent a premises and that kind of thing so you know, one of the barriers you know two of the barriers i've noticed uh with people who want to and want to do a psychotherapy uh do psychotherapy um is is a the cost uh, and then also the the people they really want to work with may not be in their area um and that the internet kind of helps out with on both of those fronts
1: yes he does because he he makes it much more accessible and i think i think the psychodynamic aspect or even the heart aspect of it all is that as it, it, it goes back to that Marxist notion of free development, which is the condition of free development or not taking enlightenment or enlightened. It, it seems to me that I, I have this I have this interest in how human beings are. And I I became fascinated about how I am as a human being. I learned lots of techniques. What I wanted to do is i wanted to share those things with as many people as possible and but also at the same time make it as accessible to the people as possible and i didn't want to pursue that normalized structure of you're with somebody from for, you, you see somebody twice a week or once a week or and you do it for years and years and years for me it was more about let's see if we could create a set of Ways of approaching something that you may be able to keep working with to enhance your understanding of yourself. And and from from a business perspective, it's it's mad because I I, I have lot uh, uh, there are lots and lots of people that I speak with, but I may only ever speak with somebody for four or six times. With that that four or six times becomes incredibly important for them to get a sense that they have it within themselves to be able to manage. Yeah. And, and what's important for me, I think, in, in the sort of psychotherapeutic space, or in that dimension, is it's about managing. It's not about happiness or enlightenment. It's about learning to manage the complexities of the world. And in managing the complexity of the world, noticing that there's more of the world that you can manage. And that's, for me, it's always been the case.
0: Well, it it makes you think that a a lot of people that one might call enlightened uh, on the sort of spiritual side of things uh, are very poor at managing the complexities of life. (laughs) You know, in fact, they they actually have
1: people dealing with all of that stuff for them, you know. well, yeah, I, I mean, I, it, I, I love Eddie Dart a bit, but I don't want to be with him. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 think, and I, and I guess that, I mean, I, I guess that, in a sense, moves into that spiritual dimension of what I do. Mm. Which yeah, which we'll, is, yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if you if you're like, going there, yeah, just do it. it, it always, I mean, from the spiritual dimension. So we have the out-of-body experience and then we have the whole notion of Taoism and the the fact that my parents have have spent the most of the 70s has been incredibly religious and very uh, Pentecostal.
0: Oh, wait, just sorry, before before we just gloss over that out-of-body stuff, did you actually have any success
1: with having out-of-body experience? I, I don't know. This is really interesting because... As a child, I suffered from panic attacks, and um, my, I, I, I used to lie in bed, and the room the, the, the room would lose it, I can't quite describe it the room would lo- lose its stability. And it would feel like it was sort of rushing towards me. At the same time, I felt that I wasn't necessarily anchored in where I was. And I had these, these experiences for, for what felt like many years. And as a child, it, they terrified me. And I think that at that point, that, that whole notion, I used to lie in bed as a child, breathing and looking up at the ceiling and imagine myself looking back at myself. Because that's what the book, did. in the book, it, it, that's what they were doing. They were sort of astral plane traveling, really. And I spent, I spent many years just looking at the ceiling, breathing, trying to see myself looking at myself. Mm. And I used to wander around and I used to see if I could, I'm giggling really because it's <laughs> right. It's, there. I, I used to, as a child, just to wander around, imagining that I could project myself into the consciousness of another being and see the world through their eyes. Oh God, so I'd really... yeah, I, I used to do a lot of lot of that kind but, of fantasizing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I,
0: I, I also yeah. used to uh, fantasize about what would it be like if you could simultaneously experience every species uh, simultaneously, you know, and then come out.
1: Yeah, of yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, but it was really, I mean, but so I'd sort of, what, what would happen, of course, is that I, I would become slightly... I'd, I'd start moving to psych- psychosis in a way because, as a child, in, instead of developing a core identity, which is what you should have been doing as children, what I were doing is trying to be everybody else's core identity. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and, and you know, I, I didn't as a, as a child, I, I didn't speak until we were three years old. So it's quite clear that there was something about wanting to maintain that inner world for as long as possible, and then when I began to manifest in the relative realm. I, I, I wanted to be somewhere else, and it's always that's that's a thing that runs through my entire life. I always want to be somewhere else, and I'm always interested in what's over there or what makes that thing work. That's a fascination. Of mine. But it so spirituality becomes it's it, it's it becomes a thing that's not important in my family. It's just in the family so we have we go to church my parents have bible readings i've been baptized in the holy spirit <laughs> in a pool in file in bottlings <laughs> i <I've> mean <been, laughs> wow. you know, I, you know I, it's literally I, I mean i and that and that was i think it was about 14 or 15 when that happened so our all our holidays were evangelical holidays we went to but we went to butlin's holiday camps at the last two weeks of each season where it was just given over to evangelists i I, as a child i was taken to see billy graham you know i had been intense listening to preachers so for a long period of my developmental structure as a child spirituality just became the thing that you did religion but not really religion it was more about the pentecostal evil things very much about praising the lord noticing the lord and that and the the outer body experience of the, the fainting the talking in tongues it, it all fascinated me and thought it was great so it's always been there within me but it's never been it, it was never stabilised into particular patterns so, I never really went off and sort of studied it. And I had friends who were Buddhist and I read Buddhist stuff, but I was never really interested in Buddhism. And I liked Taoism. And, I, and when I came to London, I really became incredibly fascinated by Taoism and started to think about going to a Taoist temple. There used to be a Taoist temple in Seoul, and so on. I wanted to go and visit there. And I really began to think about becoming a Taoist monk because the whole notion of the spiritual idea just fascinated me I, I just thought it was incredible that because it really sat well with my idea of not being located in myself yeah it also had a notion i i was also fascinated by alchemy as well and the 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 taoist had a whole alchemical process also well. that that's another reason that sort of academic reason why i i so my spirituality has always been there and it's been expressed by things like the way in which I approached the yoga, the the way in which I approached acting. In in acting, I became much more interested in what I would now call non-duality, or or acting from the non-dual, and what that would look like. And but I had never ever formalised it. It, I, it was just primarily because It was just something I did. Um, When Integral Theory and Integral Transformative Practice comes on, of course, there becomes a much more formalised way of doing, or what we might talk about practices. So we talk about meditation. So I don't like, I don't like sitting in a a posture. I've I've never, I've always found it quite uncomfortable. So for me, meditation was much more about being single focused on um, breathing or single focused on running or single focused on the exercise. it it, again it just became something that i did but i had a problem i had a major problem with the whole notion of spirituality which was this thing that you had to try and attain this non-dual space that you're trying to attain and i used to get really annoyed annoyed at is it sailor bob Sweet one thing think, why, why can't I have that experience? Why can't I have that Satori experience? Why can't I do it? Why can't... And I used to get really annoyed. I'd do all these. I'd be breathing. I'd be meditating. I think, why can't I have this non-dual one? Why can't I awaken? And, and one day I just thought, maybe you're already awake. Mm. Maybe you just... That's it. Just Maybe you're just already awake. Well, I, I think, I think they, it's,
0: that's a very common story that uh that this 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 kind of uh spirit you know enlightenment <clears throat> spiritual uh, spiritual beingness uh is so often set up as an external goal um and uh i'm thinking of the the zen ox herding pictures uh which is a <clears throat> series of pictures which depict the path of meditation and you know so you start out kind of seeing the 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 ox which is the the zen uh you know the enlightenment and then you start sort of uh, taming it and then riding it and then you all go off in, into the mountains and everything turns into formlessness and then it kind of ends up with this big fat happy guy coming into the town with a bag full of sweets given out to the children and um it, it uh some people and some uh religious traditions they they the spirituality is always something which is outside of yourself which you're sort of it's moving towards but it's like on the ever receding horizon you never quite get there and one of the for me uh when i came across ken Wilber's integral Theory, um, and of course, you know, he's not the only one who's done this integral stuff. Lots of others, but one of the things which really changed for me was uh, the the notion, the, the, the this sort of conceptual framework around the first person, second person, and third person uh, dimensions of spirituality. And um, for, for for people listening, who that might sound a bit abstract, the first person is your experience. Uh, second person is in relationship to another person and then the third person experiences more of a sort of uh, objective um out there in the world um you, you know with 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 all of the other forces in the world interacting with it and um uh so uh, you know I'd, I'd had this kind of third person and second person thing going on with my spirituality but the missing piece was my own direct experience and seeing and noticing the sort of what you might call transpersonal aspects of my own experience as it is. Um, and uh, so for me, that was a big moment. Um, I, I'm just sharing that because it, what you were saying kind of reminded me
1: of, uh, of, of that. Well, no, I think it's true that I think that it is that, it's the, it's the notion that i what I began to question is if I'm a spiritual being then spiritual then the notion of spirit exists within me it's not something that I'm trying to reach out for and also it may it, it may not be this sort of shifting consciousness that all of a sudden I can see the network net. That's in nature. It may not be that kind of thing. It may just be that what it is is, I mean, I think it's the, the, the Wilbur for me really sums up when he said it's the simple sense of being. It's, a, it's just feeling a being. And in that real deep sense of being, I, I can feel a heartbeat and it's not my heartbeat, It's it's some other heartbeat. I know my heartbeat because spent time listening to it when i've been running but that spirit spirituality for me or that spiritual dimension in in all in sort of integral practices is about becoming more aware of that heartbeat and then say how do i keep that heartbeat strong what do i do to keep that heartbeat strong but it's not my heartbeat it's the heartbeat of spirit and what i began to realize is that spirit is everywhere so then I have a responsibility to keep that heartbeat strong. And it might be that it's a commune thing that I do in my local community or I do with the world, or, but it's the sense in which I have a responsibility to keep that heartbeat strong. So then to myself, well, what's, what's my way? What, how can I take on that responsibility? So the work I do is about helping other people hear that heartbeat and keep it strong and i and i think there may there there is a deep if i did if i did a therapy session on myself i'd say there's a deep reason for that which is as a child i was so enmeshed in religious doctrine of a particular creed that when it came to being spiritual i had to reject them all so mm. i've got I, you know, I I went off and I've done Zen retreats and I've done all the Tabegathers or whatever, and I've I prostrated myself and I've done something thinking, ah, it's not for me, mate. That, I that's no, I'm I'm not bowing down to that piece of plaster because <laughs> that's that's not that's not spirituality for me. That's you know, for me spirituality doesn't need a grand ritual of dressing spirituality just needs to hear that heartbeat so you're
0: the the talk you're talking of of the heartbeat um that might sound a bit abstract to people is can can you unpack that concept a little bit i'm asking you to express the ineffable
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right then i'll have (laughs) a go um, so I see if I can do it. Let me see how how might I do it? I've got it I just just popped him so see if I can get this. I think no one of the things the speaking to people in practice in my practice in the sense of my work at the early stages of lockdown people were overwhelmed by the possibility of space not overwhelmed in a sense of a negative but all of a sudden chattering had stopped you couldn't get coffee, you couldn't get your flour, You couldn't, all those things that we expected we could normally get, we couldn't go to the pub and things. And and so many people I spoke to were, this is really nice. Okay, so there are things that we, we can't do. But suddenly removing all of those things, all of those contractions of a relative realm, gave people an opportunity to go, this is really nice. There's a stillness there. And what they could do and what they could speak about is really seeing things, really noticing things, really being awake to things because they weren't rushing around. And what's been really interesting is that as I spoke to people now and we're sort of in coming out of lockdown, so many people I'm speaking to are really overwhelmed now. It's become a really difficult space to be in. That really what they're doing now is saying, I want congestion now. I want conflict. I, I I want something to take me away from this stillness. Now if I sit really still now my hearing expands and I can hear more. So it seems it seemed to me that that Hearing more of what's there is, is, I can. I'm in a room now where if I, if I really go, still, I can hear the wind blowing through the trees in the park across the way because there's nothing else, there's no noise around it, it's just the wind. And, that, and so, when I talk about this sort of heartbeat, it's about removing all the things that we construct around ourselves to make our fat cells feel okay and noticing that actually. We're okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's that—that's the okay. And I—I—I I, I am aware that I am making a, a, a massive generalisation because there are people that, for many many reasons, are not okay. And I get that. And I get that there are socialist, socialist, the political, the ideological things that have caused people to really not be okay. But at the heart of every human being is the notion that they're okay, and it seems to me that when we started to really notice that we were okay, we started to rebel against it.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, humans are, are so fickle, you know. It's <laughs> like you, you kind of want you want you pretend that you want to feel okay with every with, all the time with everything, and then when you're given the opportunity, you're like ah. Then I will do that. No, I'm not but doing it, that. Uh, just thinking about <clears throat> you're saying people in different difficult life circumstances not being okay. There, there have been many, many examples of people that have been in the most horrendous life circumstances, um, you know, concentration camps, prison, uh, to- you know, tortured and uh, abusive relationships and that, but who have nonetheless somehow managed to access that deep level of being that is okay even even whilst living in hell um that that you know we those kind of stories are part of popular culture even you know i'm I'm thinking of some of the stories that came out of the nazi concentration camps Mm -hmm. and and that um so it's, it's not life circumstances uh make this kind of thing very difficult but not impossible
1: well isn't it it's, it's it's the sort of man's search for me, it? the 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 idea that what from from the spiritual dimension we, we might have to say well if we were to what's the practice of the spiritual dimension and for me it's the practice of love and it's the practice of recognizing that love is an energy that we've capitalized into something that we spend And I think that if I I think about anything that's wrong with the whole capitalist notion of the world is that it turned love into something that we can make profit from. And I I think that is absolutely, for me, it's the worst thing that human beings ever did is decided that they would turn love into capital. Mm. And it's brought so much pain and anguish to people who have been caught up in being a commodity of that love yeah so uh, i think I, I,
0: you you can see you can see a reflection of that in the way uh, a, a truly loving gesture which we might say we might call a spiritual love type of gesture uh, is is one that doesn't expect any return on it you know it's it's, it's a gift uh, it, you know an absolute gift one-way exchange um, no not exchange it's just a gift and <clears throat> you know the other on the other side you've got this uh kind of conditional love of um you know i will give you some love but i i'm going to call in the favor sometime in the future and they're quite they're quite different quite different modes
1: well it's it, it's it's when it's when we use our power of love and we we connect it to an object that we think will give us more love. So the idea is saying something like, um, I, I, I love profit. And therefore, if I make more profit, then I'll have more love. But then I have to question the notion of, well, how am I going to make more profit? Well, I'll make more profit from the notion of producing something that can be sold. But I need to sell it at a reduced price price so that i can have profit so i know what i'll do what i'll then do is uh, i need energy i need energy to make the profit to make the product to make the profit so i can get more because i love profit well where am i going to get that energy from well if i don't have machines to do that i have to have another form of energy source well these human beings they're my energy source But so what I'll do is because I love profit and because I love the things that give me profit, I will take human beings and turn them into nothing more than machines. I will dehumanize them for the very nature of my profit. And I'll call it love. I love profit. Look at at my big house, all of my big house. But that big house was built on the structure of dehumanizing human beings. And for me, that's the that's that's the tragedy of human beings is they took something that was pure that was there for us to create contingency with each other to meet each other to see each other as another human being and it turned it into something that caused people immense suffering and it's just i find it absolutely i don't know well i do know it's soul destroying Hmm. and for me that's the worst thing that human beings can do with their inadequate understanding of love is to destroy souls of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really, that's
0: really, really powerful. And and I and, and I think you know, you've kind of defined the abstraction in a way that that I I can relate to. Um, you know, as uh, <clears throat> uh this it, it is all about love but <laughs> there there's different types of love and it's uh having the being able to dis- discern uh you know what we might call authentic love from and and a, and a generative love uh as compared with a with a with a with a type of love this kind of
1: twisted love which is ultimately destructive i i can, for me i I, 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 I understand that idea of of creating objects of love, but then I, for me spirituality is about love and it's about the energetic nature of love and then it's about what do I want to do with that love how might how might I want that love to show up or how might I want to embody that love so i if, if my spiritual practice is to make sure that I don't create an object for my love that then says that what I'm doing is I'm giving parental love. I, I don't think such a thing as parental love. I actually don't think there's such a thing as generative love. I don't think such a thing as twisted love. I think it's just love that we then create a notion of what kind of love it is. There isn't any kind of love, there's just love so for me. And it's about, finding a space where it's within myself and then being really careful and respectful of that and ensuring that when it's shared with other people it's shared with other people so that they can see that they have it within themselves yeah yes yeah, great i love
0: it bullet psh. so <laughs> yeah no that's that's really perfect it's 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 a very simple definition of, sp- of spiritual. Practice or spirituality and it, it extremely pithy um and um i, I think oh, that's all, it's all contained in there
1: that's quite exciting nobody's ever called me pithy before <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: um so Brilliant. one thing we we haven't touched on quite is how how the mind our minds come into this constellation of of our lives and and you know, one of my one of my th- things that 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 makes me a bit grumpy is um the anti-intellectualism that is part of so much spirituality and self-help and mm. and and that and i i understand where that's come from because you know it's, it's so much of what we need to do uh as a as a species is get out of our heads a bit more and reconnect with our body and emotions and spiritual beingness mm-hmm. um so i i know why you know why that is happening out there in in the culture but um it's unnecessarily hobbling uh you know people's growth uh and and also you know if we we're talking of love you know it's it's uh it's it's one way of accessing love is is through the intellect and the mind um so it perhaps you could speak a bit about your the the life of you, you your mind your relationship with mm-hmm. your with your thinking and and how how that's changed over time and if if they're have there been particular moments where certain theories came along that showed you new things, uh, which, you know, took you so far and then, you know, something else happens. And it yeah, just a little bit about the, the, your journey.
1: If, if we talk about mind as a a processing of ideas, I, I didn't have a mind for a long while. I, I didn't have, wasn't, didn't particularly enjoy school. It wasn't particularly good at school. And really just, when I left school, I wanted to be an actor. That, that's all I wanted to do. And it's because I didn't function well in that sort of academic setting. And I, I really didn't function well. And I, and I began to believe that I didn't function well in that academic setting for years. So for for a lot of the eighties, i i worked in kitchen portrait and i worked in hospitals i used to empty um, bags laundry bags from the um, surgeries which was dreadful dreadful you know but i believed that i had a mind that was only fit for empty laundry bags so i was doing all the bodybuilding things but still the acting but i believe that I I believed a narrative that I'd been told that all my mind would be able to process ideas of is which sheet goes into which bin. And it wasn't until I began to think about stopping putting laundry sheets in bins and I'd always had this idea that I, I wanted to do something in philosophy Uh, and i i did an open college course in in sort of introduction to philosophy and all of a sudden i kind of thought oh actually this this is not difficult this is not hard work and from there i then went on and did a BTEC in performing arts went to drama school and all of a sudden my mind started to function because it had suddenly been given ideas that it went oh i quite like this this is interesting and it was ideas about the nature of the world. The na- I mean, now I will go back and say, it was ideas about the nature of reality. And I, at that point, because I, I was coming into contact, again, I go back to some of my heroes, Brooke, uh, Gritosky, Stephen stephen the These were people who were really thinking about the ideology for the ideas of theatre. And I thought it were great. And I really began to read a lot of theatre stuff, and I many books around the theory of theatre, and I quite liked Aaron Beck with his books around cognitive behavioural therapy. So I read a lot of Aaron Beck. Then I then I found Jung, and Jung really sat well with all the drama training. And what Jung was providing is a sort of transpersonal nature of things. And my interest in in, transper, in the transpersonal, <clears throat> sorry, stayed with me because it was it was being interested in the transpersonal that actually took me to train as in a the drama therapist. And it was John Rowan's book on the transpersonal that I always point to being the thing that liberated me. Hmm. Because it was such an easy book to read. And it was such an informative book. But it was a book that said there's this realm and there are these people that are really deeply talking about the notion of reality from the transpersonal. And he had a a chapter in in there about Wilbur, but it was Wilbur prior to sex according spirituality, which I find very difficult to understand. But just as I'd done with the sort of the exercising, I suddenly found myself desperate to understand it. So I had all this history of, of not being of being somebody who'd work in a laundry. And all of a sudden I threw it all away and said, I want to know this, I want to understand this and I worked really hard to understand John Rowan's stuff. And then then of course when I get to reading Wilbur stuff and and doing and and I'd I'd already been to I'd already done a B B-Tech, no, I'd done a Postgraduate of education at Greenwich University. So I'd already started to develop a sort of confidence in academic writing, academic thinking. With the drama therapy training, I'm writing essays and keeping journals and writing theses and things. And I'm becoming much, much more interested in Wilbur um, through John Rowan. And then I get to Spiral Dynamics. And I thought Spiral Dynamics was absolutely fabulous. The book's a bit hard work. It's a bit boring. But it spiral dynamics really switched my brain on, Hmm. because it it gave me a framework for reality that wasn't necessarily um, hierarchical in saying these people are at this because of their social condition and these people it it didn't it it didn't have that kind of let's put people into these category things. I love the idea of colours and that colours were in people, and and then set against Wilbur's map, his quadrants map. I ploughed my way through sex ecology and spirituality, and I thought sex ecology and were brilliant. And then I'm completely switched on. And as Wilbur says, his work, I would have to say, switches you on, because when you read it, you kind of go, "Yeah, it makes sense. That oh, I understand that. Yeah, I see that. Why didn't see that before? He 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 really says it. it it's it's it is mind active because it starts posing questions the brain loves questions you know what what we know is is that the the brain thinks and if you don't give it something to think it'll it'll create fantasies to think about so my brain son had all these things to think about Uh, what quadrant am i in what level am i at it was just fabulous and i i became so enamored by wilbur and what he was presenting and the way he was presenting i went off to Boulder and i met the man i've done the training I'm, i've trained in level one dynamics.
0: just um say you know some people listening to this won't know what dynamics are or integral theory and I, i'm not suggesting at all that we uh you know to, to try and describe what's in those those theories i mean people could go and look them up uh, and see if they they find them equally powerful um so you know maybe we don't need to unpack that you know, people could go and look it up i think um an essay was something in particular you want you, you thought might be a quick
1: way of summing it up yeah i i i think that there there are there are ways we can see things and what integral theory and dynamics propose is that there are there is there is not just one way that we can see something we can see something in different ways and we might call those that we might say that they're different theories about how we can see something but the thing that we see is we can always see it differently now that's what fascinates me about about integral theory and dynamics is that they were proposing that you could look at something and see it differently see different ways you could see it well as a child I'm wandering around wanted to be in everybody's heads asking how do they see the world and what Wilbur Sparrow, and i i just saying is there are these theories that can show you how to see things in different ways well it's, it's much more complicated than that it, it becomes quite over complicated but what's fascinating is that they're just ways in which you can see things yeah so yeah
0: Five people, uh, well, let's make it a bit simpler. Three, three people might be looking at the same phenomenon, whether it's a cultural phenomenon or, um, <clears throat> I mean, let's say, let's take something, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to get too much into politics. <laughs> well, let, well no, let's let's take something like, um, uh, you know, well something like politics, the politics, UK politics, for example, uh, three people might look at UK politics and draw completely different conclusions from it. And they are perceiving kind of different worlds. Um, and part of, one of the, part of what these theories enable you to do is to access... The kind of spectrum of different the, there are there are there are types of perception uh, that that people tend to aggregate around the types of perspective on on things, and you you kind of you can slice it up as many ways as you like, but there there are kind of general patterns, and once you can understand how uh, you know this, across this spectrum of ways of perceiving life or you know anything um you you become more fluid and it and it, and it relates to this thing of, of love that you can it's it's a very loving act to to truly enter another person's perspective and see the world mm. through their eyes absolutely yeah. and uh, and it also it, it's liberating for you because it it gives you this fluidity uh to deal with it, it kind of comes back to complexity again that it, this is almost at the heart of the complexity of human life is that there are so many different ways that people perceive the same things. And, <clears throat> you know, once you become a bit more proficient in understanding the variety of these perceptions, uh, you, you can, you kind of embrace this, this complexity that's inside ourselves and inside of all of human, human culture.
1: Well, you, what, what, what you do is you you remove fear of the other yeah so that if i i used to describe like a lemon if i put a lemon on a table somebody might see as they might see it for its nutrients somebody might see it for how it was capitalistically produced somebody might see it as i reckon that they went and bought it with their partner and somebody might see it as a, as a, a wonderful recognition of, the, of nature. So they may, may all see it differently. What's beautiful about things like, like the, the integral philosophy, if you will, as, which we can drop spiral dynamics into, is that it says these are real views. These are real ways in which we can see something and therefore if we then get in traction on the different ways something can be seen and we accept that the individual is seeing it and we understand how they're seeing it and why they're seeing it in that way there is no conflict now i accept their view it's not my view but i can give space for their view and in giving space for their view i expand my view by including their view and hopefully they include my view they expand their view. So what we're doing is we're increasing our capacity as human beings to interact with each other.
0: Yeah, I was it may, thinking of the politics again. You know what? What if say if you are, uh, you know, on the left or a liberal, progressive uh, person politically, and uh, you know, so often one would write off the uh, you know conservative perspective of politics and vice versa if you're you know more conservative you might look at the the lefties and just not even you just think they're just crazy (laughs) and you don't you don't want any you know to to enter into the the perspective of the political other is like you know who wants to do that but what when you start to do it you actually understand uh that People that see politics differently from you—they're uh, on the other side of the right or left divide, or whatever. Um, there, there, there are truths that they're perceiving which you aren't from your political vantage point. And of course, you know, it, it's not to say that—you know—if you inhabit the, um, let's just say you're you're on the left politically, your someone asks you to try and inhabit the perspective of somebody on the right what what some of the reluctance people feel to do that is that they feel like they might get trapped in there a bit like those fables where they say don't eat the fruit you know mm. you go to some magic land and say don't eat the fruit and the person mm. eats the fruit and then they fall asleep they wake up and they're a donk you know got donkey's ears and yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> they have to so you know suddenly you find you're a you're a republican or a conservative you know where they, how did that happen but uh you you can enter these perspectives feel the truth and validity of of that perspective the 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 the, the things they're perceiving which you're not which are mm. which are mm. true mm. uh and and in fact things you would actually want to take away with you so I mean, if we're thinking of mm. uh, the, 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 the conservative view you know some of the things around family values and tradition and you know, law and order, those kind of things. They're they're really quite positive. Uh, so, but you don't have to. You can you can bring that with you, uh, and uh, you don't have to bring the things that you genuinely think are wrong uh, with you. I, you know, you can actually leave them aside.
1: Um, yeah. Well, you know, but it's that awakening to that notion for me that you can inhabit you know, again it's all about you can inhabit the space of the other person you can really gain traction on how that other person sees something you can take what you think is useful you can reject you you have that freedom to do that but what you're doing is honoring the other person's perspective again sits back to the idea of the child that wants to be in the head of the other person what i find fascinating is that what Wilbur was doing for me is he was speaking about the notion of spirituality as something that didn't necessarily need the ritualistic structure that I'd experienced as a child he was talking I mean initially I initially had issues around his developmental ladder where he put the spiritual states on top because that still made me feel like oh I'm never going to get there because I've got to get I've got to reach these higher echelons to get into causal spiritual realms. Then there was the shifting of how he mapped his his views and things. Well what Wilbur be for me, what really excited me is when Wilbur and Well the Wilbur Coombs Matrix, where Wilbur said there's a developmental attitude, and then at every level of your consciousness, there is this access to these states, these these beautiful spiritual states. And he was sort of, for me, he was kind of saying, This is the map of it, this is what it could look like. And what I realized is that the reason why my mind didn't switch on in the '70s and '80s is because I like cartography, I like map making, I like understanding maps, I like drawing maps. I don't mean literally going out and drawing the maps of London streets. I like to map people when I talk to people, I like to get a map of where they're going and what they're doing, and shall we walk down this road? Shall we go there? that's what. Wilbur brought is thinking as mapping, but also recognizing there were some areas that I didn't know. So if, I, so if I'd come across an area I didn't know, I think, well, I think I'll go off and uh, investigate that dark area, see if I can get a map of it. So he really lit me up. So I, I have to say that John Rowan provides a sort of starting point. Wilbur and provide the kind of catalyst. But well, then we have to get to critical realism and Bascar and that, that that's the point where I really began to think for thinking. I, I find I mean it, it's it's a massively complex thing and I don't know if we really want to go into yeah, that space.
0: I mean I, I, I have to confess, um critical realism is not I mean i I have I've not spent a lot of time uh with critical realism, trying to understand it. But I think partly because it seems very dense and um, di- difficult to understand. I mean, then really, that should be a, uh, an indication that it's something I should uh, try and spend some time to understand. I was talking to Lehman Pascal the other day, and he was saying one of, you know, a really simple practice for your mind is to read stuff that you find difficult. <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh you know
1: good good well, it, it is but i think i think the, the 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 difficult process for me is it it's the it's the wanting i heard pascal speak at a at a festival that had been organized by enlightened next and because he, he was in, in London, very near where I live, I went along and he was speaking about non-duality and he, he, he was, his talk was called Activist for the Real. And Biscar said something that I'd never heard anybody say before, which is he said, non-duality is the causal property of social cohesion. And I've never heard anybody say that before. He, can, he, he wasn't talking about some grand spiritual satori gesture or he wasn't speaking about going off into ashrams or, or spending 10 days in silent retreat. He was saying non-duality ontologically speaking or the sense of being is what is necessary for human beings to interact with each other. And I kind of went, wow. Wilbur never said that. Sparrow Damson say that. This is a man professor of philosophy saying this is how it is and I got so excited about what he said that I then went off to read one of his books I picked his book up and I thought oh dear god <laughs> it's really <laughs> hard yeah. but he inspired me so much by what he said that I began to pursue his stuff and unravel it and I'm still unraveling and you know, and I have met the man I've worked with the man and he he was for me, if I wanted to suggest what a spiritual being is like in the gentlemanly quality of the man, it was Bascal. Bascal just was a gentleman and he took time for people. He didn't need to take time for people. But he if we think about that idea of practice theory consistency, he was constantly consistent. And that's what I... I, I the, the re I loved the man so much because he was consistent because he was secure because what he what he believed he could speak about and he believed that what he wanted is a philosophy that could affect people at an everyday level the unfortunate thing of course is that he was writing for an audience that were anti what he was talking about so he had to be very common he once said to me I have to have a complex argument because I, I'm arguing against I'm arguing with people who have complex arguments.
0: Yeah. That makes me, uh, it was, uh, it was some, some guy who, uh, who does some, some, uh, coaching business coaching stuff. And, uh, he was in a room full of very intelligent people. And he was just like saying, I've been attacked by clever people. You know, it's, um, and <clears throat> he was obviously a very he was a very clever person himself but he was he, he was
1: yeah it's what it's like to be in that kind of environment yeah so so you you have to be as clever if not cleverer than them in a way and so that's that was that was unfortunately the the space in which Biscay inhabited as an academic but as a person his philosophy impacted on his life and that's what I find really lovely. And I also find that he th- there was no grandiosity about him. There was no cult around him. And, and he was really addressing things in a way that made deep sense to me. And, I'd, and, and that began my sort of pulling away from integral theory because I felt that integral theory more and more was just repeating the same thing over and over again, that I'd not heard it say anything new. And I'd started to become quite frustrated by it. And I'd started to become frustrated by the way in which there was a, this this kind of almost Godhead notion of the community. And and I did again, therapeutically speaking, that's primarily because I started feeling like it was becoming a bit religious. Hmm. Um for me, because of my experience. So the, is con- that could,
0: could is are there YouTube videos of Roy Bhaskar talking in a more conversational tone? I mean, it, 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 is there somewhere where you know the, the people that are not the hardcore academics could could, could encounter his work uh, and get some kind of traction with it? There,
1: there is a, a website that's just been reactivated, and it's it's called it's the Critical Realism Network, and um, there is um, on the critical risk. I think if you type in, I think it's, it might be www.criticalismnetwork.com or something like that. But if you type in critical network, there are there's a there are a series of very simple videos of somebody talking about criticalism to, in, to introduce criticalism. And then there's an interview with Roy, which I think is about six minutes long on. And it, and somebody said it's the most succinct way that the has talked about his entire philosophy in six minutes. Right. And that's yeah. what I'm that's that's after the elevator yeah. speech, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, it, it it's, it, it is, it, it's a challenge. And I, and, but I, th- I think what Wilbur had done for me from perspective of mind that he'd awakened my mind to multiple maps of reality and how to navigate these multiple maps of reality. What Bascar was saying is what the territory looks like. And that, that's what I got so excited. I think that's where I started to get a little bit disillusioned with integral theory, is, that, is that, the, uh, the, that notion of the map's not the territory, but you keep giving me the map. I oh, want to know the territory. I'll so we'll just tell you, yeah. we'll, just, we'll, we'll expand the map. We'll, we'll have eight zones, and we'll have eight horizons, and we'll have a cube. No, no, stop giving me maps. I want, and I want to territory and bascal was talking about the territory what does the world look like yeah that, that,
0: this, that was uh, that was a similar experience for me i kind of once i'd got the map thing with the with the integral theory i wanted to know what you know what was the action what was real life like lived mm. this way and who was doing it what what were the what were the companies that were doing this this you know and um, what were the communities that were doing who were the people um you know who, what what would i become if i put this into practice so you know K- ken gives you this map uh which is which is incredible and then it's up to everybody else to fitted in the details in you know with with their own lives and um so the quest for me became connecting with people who were actually doing this work building <laughs> personal relationships with them and uh yeah making it it real and and <laughs> yeah i what you're saying is is familiar that of just going over the map over and over again and once you've heard it you know for a thousand times it's like okay so i'm just going to stop listening to the map now or think i'm just going to you know uh, get down in the weeds a
1: bit um yeah i i think me, this, this is just a thing but i think for me when i when i read um this last book i can't remember what it's called now i just uh, thought religion of tomorrow religion of tomorrow yeah. so what if you can't put it in the book don't put it in a footnote Stop it. it. And I think that's that was the thing I was getting, is is that for me, practices of the mind are giving my mind something that it it becomes so interested in that it becomes obsessed in thinking about it. So I know that my mind is a thinking thing. I know that if I give it something to do, it will think it. So, rather than give it negative things to think about, why don't I look at a book that I'm uncertain about and why don't I pursue it and give my mind something to think about and so i'm i am it, it's interesting to go back to the notion of um the the, the sort of um some the the it's not the dumbing diary so much as it's the taking concepts and creating the the way in which the concept is put forward without getting too academic. So I've I've just read a, a book on the, the orgasmic, living the orgasmic life, which is a women's book on tantric sex. But it's done in a very Californian way. It's a good book. And it's an easy book to read. And as I was reading through it, and I thought it's a good book, some really interesting There's just some things I think I was a bit dumbing down that, but what it does is it offers the gateway to really investigating more of this stuff. And it's that's always my starting point. I'll always read a sort of um, a self-help book, first of all. I, think, oh, I don't I don't want to go and read the academic papers on this particular theoretical approach, but it's a self-help book that I can read, it's sort of, that's pepsi it a bit, but it's a really useful tool because people want me to put it by. I'll go and read that, and then I'll think, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Now I want to go and find out more about it so I've yeah, always it's
0: kind that. of uh, laddering up or
1: something yeah 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 yeah. yeah. so that's so so this useful thing and maybe that's if, if i was to say what would be a mind practice i would say laddering up the the if there are things i mean that's what with the um with the, the order of natural necessity which is the book that, that i edited from some talks that i did with roy in 2014 the notion of that book was to try and create that idea of laddering that it was to present critical realism in a way that was kind of accessible to many people that would give them enough grounding in his theory to want to say now i think i'll take on a more challenging book
0: Hmm.
1: so i think there's a real space for those kind of um front door books really yeah I think I think there's too many, but I think yeah, we have to talk about the fact that you do them because they sell well and all that sort of thing. I'm, we, we've we
0: nearly done two hours, which is a, amazing. Wow. Um, I've absolutely loved this conversation. It's been brilliant. And it's oh. been very interesting doing it with the video off. Um, I think that saved the audio quality. Uh, the audio quality yeah. of the call has been good. Um, but it's, it's interesting how not having the video there Really changes the the nature of the conversation. It's been been quite interesting for me to notice that. Uh, but this will be, um, I think, in that this is primarily a podcast, uh, an audio thing. But I will be putting on YouTube. But um, <clears throat> I, I'll probably put some cool visuals up on YouTube while people listen to it. So uh, before you say where people can find out more about your work or things you care about. Uh, is there is there any last thing you feel ought to be said? Ought to be said? Uh, not ought to be said. W- you, do you want? Hey, do you want to say <laughs> anything, <laughs> anything? Anything? Uh, is
1: is love moving you to say
0: <laughs> anything else?
1: I uh, I feel like I should say something. Like, like what you what you feels like you're is that have you got we've done the interview now have you got any questions to ask um no i don't think i have i, I can hear lots of voices in my head chattering and saying, no let me have a, let me say something let me say something and i'm sure i'll go away thinking something no right now when i listen to all the voices there's nothing really clamoring to say anything there's no, There's there's nobody saying i ought to have space yeah it's been a very comprehensive conversation
0: it's it's been amazing and it's so so uh, for me personally it's been wonderful to hear more about your life um, oh, because yeah. <laughs> even <laughs> though even though I've known you for uh, you know sort of 12, 12 or 13 years um and of course I know stuff about you uh but your life you know we've met in person quite a few times as well <clears throat> but uh you know it's, there's uh, so much i've learned about you today it's uh it's been been really cool um and i think it has you've, been... you've got so much uh to share with people through you know
1: you've you've been doing this stuff for a long time um it, it has been very difficult actually it's been a difficult two hours because i'm not used to talking about myself I'm used to asking people questions about themselves, so it's been really quite. It's been really challenging. Mm. Well, you,
0: you've done great, and I, I hardly needed to ask any questions. Was oh, just... pleased about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, if people want to find out more about your work or anything you particularly care about, um, what would you?
1: Point well, there's out a, I have a website, and, and, and the website is um, it's www.garyhawk.com org and and that's that's sort of it's a it's a a professional website in that it sort of details my professional things that I do like what what do I do to earn my money and also there there's lots of things about me rambling about things that have suddenly angered me or frustrated me or I wanted to speak about so there's lots of me right there and also there are some testimonials and reviews of things that I've done so it's a good place if people wanted to get a sense of what i am that's a good place to go too, because you, you it's some, sometimes it can be a bit theory i mean, sometimes i can get a bit sort of over preachery. Right? but that's, that's the place to go to know more about me
0: cool and uh i mean i'll just do a testimonial to say that it, it's been w- it, it's such a powerful thing working with you all these years uh and um you know i can plan to to do to do many more as much as as much as you can tolerate um and uh oh, i've got know. very
1: high tolerance
0: <laughs> okay <laughs> but it's uh, I, I, you've been an amazing psychotherapist and what what made me seek you out uh initially was that you brought this great breadth to it of 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 this whole you know if we were to break it up into body heart mind spirit you know you bring all of that to it it's not just your kind of classic talk therapy um it, it's it's been a really transformative thing for me um okay. and i've uh, been i'm so grateful for it and uh, so I, I get you for what it's worth my uh recommendation is uh, well, is, for, is there
1: but it, but for what it's worth is that it's worth a lot
0: yeah well it certainly has been for me Thank you. um and thank you so much uh, for your generosity in giving this time to, okay to talk. It. Even um, though it's been
1: a challenge, I've enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, me too. Cool. Um, I w- and I will no doubt speak to you soon. And uh, who knows, might uh, get you know, re- people on as repeat guests on the podcast. <gasps> so exciting.
1: So. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Lots of love,
1: Gary. Right, you take care of yourself. Yeah. Bye. Cheers. Bye.